Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning. Good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogue. I am your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Just want to let you know that this is episode 31. Now, normally we take our break around episode 25, but we did keep going a little bit past our break point. So we are going to be taking a station break. Um, After today's episode, we will be back. Uh, Lord willing, all goes well. We will be back November 1st. So if you don't see us on this platform, uh, on IG, that is why we, we're going to take a break and then we'll be coming back with the, the second part, um, of this season, season 11. If you want to continue to keep up with us, we will be airing our Sunday podcast on anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogue. So we will still be doing our Sunday uh, dialogues, but we are taking a station break from our um, weekday podcast. So I just want to make that uh, clarification today. We are on Finance Friday. So this is our last Finance Friday before we take our pause. And we are reading The Whiteness of Wealth, by Dorothy A. Brown. So this will also be a good time if you want to catch up on our previous podcast, catch up on our previous uh, topics and videos. Um, So you can be aware of sort of where we are in our conversations. This would be a great time uh, to do that because like I said, we will resume November 1st. This book is talking about how the tax system impoverishes Black Americans and how we can fix it. So right now we're really talking about the problem and today we're going to finish chapter two. So if you are interested in getting this book and catching up with us, we'll be finishing chapter two today. So all you have to do is read chapter one and two. And then when we come back from our break, we'll be diving right in to chapter three. Again, uh, for those of you coming in after this session, we'll be taking a station break. Um, and we'll be pausing our daily podcast and we will resume on November 1st. Again, we will resume on November 1st. So we are in chapter two, which is Black House, White Market, talking about the um, the housing issues, right? And the housing and how that affects um, you as a homeowner, you as a taxpayer, So let's continue this conversation because we do want to finish up this chapter today. Research by Institute on Assets and Social Policy, IASP, 
at the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University, followed a group of American families over a 25-year period from 1984 to 2009 and showed that the single largest contributor to the racial wealth gap was home ownership. The home ownership rate for white families in the study was almost 30 percentage points higher than the home ownership rate for black families. Home equity too was greater for whites than blacks. These numbers mirror national statistics. 73% of white Americans are homeowners compared with only 44% of black Americans. A different study of home sales to low and moderate income households between 2000 and 2010, a period that includes the Great Recession, showed that white families gained or lost money depending on when they purchased, but black families consistently lost money regardless of the timing of when they purchased. Home buying is statistically more likely to lead to a non-deductible loss if you are black than if you are white. Much of the current research attributes the racial home ownership gap to historical governmental discrimination and discrimination in the mortgage lending industry, both of which are indeed real problems. White Americans have benefited from what the IASP study calls residential segregation by government design, as well as more generations of family wealth building, which often reduces borrowing for down payments. And while mortgage discrimination may be illegal, it remains alive and well today. 27% of black applicants and 19% of Latinx applicants were denied mortgages in 2015, compared with 11% of white and Asian American applicants. Research also showed that in 2006, at the height of the real estate boom, black families making more than 200,000 per of income per year on average were more likely to get a subprime mortgage than white families with less than $30,000 of income. A subprime mortgage, which has a higher interest rate, is generally offered to borrowers considered too high risk to qualify for a conventional mortgage. But a borrower with $200,000 of income would not normally be considered riskier than a borrower with only $30,000 of income. White Americans are far less likely than Black and Latinx to have subprime mortgages. And even though higher interest rates may mean higher mortgage interest deductions, those come at the expense of building equity, as the higher interest payments mean home buyers are reducing their principal very slowly, if at all. There's a third factor, however, that those on the political left have failed to acknowledge. The real estate market is anti-Black because most white homebuyers engage in anti-Black behavior. As Rothstein describes in The Color of Law, for decades, white real estate speculators engaged in blockbusting, selling or renting houses to a few Black families at above market prices, then hiring other Black families to push baby carriages, knock on doors, and drive around the block to frighten white homeowners into selling at reduced prices, and then turning around and selling those same homes to Black Americans at excessive markups. But if that kind of behavior is in the past, what explains today's appreciation gap or the direct correlation between Black families moving in and property values suddenly falling? 
white Americans, present day 21st century white Americans, simply do not want to live next to too many black people, even when they can get everything they want in a racially diverse neighborhood. It is specifically the presence of black people, not other racial or ethnic minorities that brings out white Americans' concerns. In one study, subjects were shown videos of different but actual neighborhoods with actors playing residents, all white, all black, and 60% white, 40% black, and asked which they preferred. The videos controlled for social class, which meant amenities in the white neighborhoods were like the amenities in the other neighborhoods. White Americans still preferred the all-white neighborhoods. Black Americans, on the other hand, least preferred the all-white neighborhoods and viewed the all-black and racially diverse neighborhoods similarly and preferred them. This is why solutions like the ones proposed by the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates missed the mark. They each had plans to increase black homeownership rates, including providing down payment assistance or allowing homesteading as a path to homeownership for those living in neighborhoods with high vacancy rates for a period of years. But even Senator Warren, who tied down payment assistance to home purchases in historically red line neighborhoods, ignored present day racism by white homeowners. Neither she nor any of her fellow hopefuls addressed current day racism and the catch 22 black homeowners face. Ultimately, home ownership in America is a bad deal for most black Americans. Choosing the home that gives you the best shot at financial success means choosing to be a racial outlier with all the slights and insults associated with that. And if you choose what John calls the village of black community life, it is more likely to be a financial failure. White Americans are and have always been more likely to be homeowners and their homes appreciate with tax-free gain because the neighborhoods they live in are attractive to other white American home buyers. When black Americans who face increased obstacles in becoming homeowners in the first place do buy, the market disadvantages the neighborhoods they live in. Their homes do not appreciate the way that white people's homes do. So if they do sell for a gain, their gain is significantly less and they are more likely to sell their homes at a non-deductible loss. Once again, it's a matter of personal choice who you want your neighbors to be but tax policies reward most white taxpayers as personal choice and punish those made by black ones. The solution isn't for black Americans to avoid home ownership completely and stay in the non-deductible rental market forever. However, the path to black home ownership is filled with complications and setbacks, yet it can still yield important rewards. The net worth of black homeowners is significantly greater than that of renters, specifically because of the equity found in their homes. While home equity makes up only 38% of net worth for white Americans, for black Americans, it's 66% of their net worth. So how can we make home ownership more equitable and profitable for black Americans? Well, I argue for neutrality as one potential reform goal as I did for marriage. Just as getting married is a personal choice that should not change your tax liability, neither should your taxes be affected by whether you choose to buy or rent your home. In other words, either mortgage interest and real property taxes and rent should both be deductible or neither should be, and the gains on the sale of a home should be subject to the progressive tax system like the sale of any other property would be. 
Personally, I fall on the non-deductible side for a few reasons. First, allowing a rent deduction would likely enrich only the landlords who would increase rents to take advantage of the new tax break. And given that renters are disproportionately lower income, a deduction won't help those who simply take the standard deduction or are already too poor to pay federal income taxes. Second, when it comes to subsidies for home ownership, as with the joint return, the United States is already an outlier. Most of our counterparts in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development provide significantly fewer tax benefits for homeowners, and those benefits are often limited to first-time buyers, as well as means-tested or capped based on income and home price. Contrary to the fears of the real estate industry, this doesn't appear to dissuade people from wanting to buy a home. Canada, for example, has a similar home ownership rate, but it does not allow a tax break for mortgage interest. The real estate lobby is powerful, however, and here's how they will likely argue against neutrality. Any appeal of the mortgage interest deduction will have consequences for the current home values. The price of mortgage interest deduction is believed to be factored into the price of homes by anywhere from 1% to 13. Such a repeal, the lobby would argue, will reduce the value of homes by a comparable amount. The National Association of Realtors estimates a 10% decline, while the Council of Economic Advisors say the impact is likely to be merely modest. History has shown us that stoking fear in white homeowners is a powerful tool, one that the real estate industry has used freely. That said, black homeowners too will lose their value in their homes if the mortgage interest deduction goes away. Given that black home equity represents roughly two-thirds of black wealth, this is a concern I take very seriously. It's also worth saying that I'm a homeowner myself, so I know I'm advocating for a reform that will hurt me. Nevertheless, in a war there are casualties, and our current tax system is nothing less than a war on the financial stability of most Black Americans. And at the end of the day, most Black Americans remain renters, though a Pew Research Center study shows a growing number of renters of all races since 2006. Just as we saw the marriage penalty repealed when it hit white Americans hard, I might predict a similar outcome here. If we want tax reform that will help black Americans, we have to talk about leveling the playing field when it comes to renters and home buyers. The real estate lobby is quite effective at getting what it wants from Congress. After all, the only personal interest that survived the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was the deduction for mortgage interest. But here's where history can help us. The real estate lobby's open complicity in the discrimination against prospective black home buyers should go a long way toward muting them. We have to keep reminding the real estate lobby of the things that happen to black people at their hands to make them less formidable opponents this time around. The real estate lobby also proved vulnerable recently when it lost a round with the temporary 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act which is actually scheduled to expire on December 31st, 2025. That legislation increased the standard deduction, which means fewer taxpayers will bother to itemize their mortgage interest deduction and just take the standard deduction instead. I also reduced the amount of mortgages you can have outstanding and still qualify for the mortgage interest deduction. They reduced it from 1 million to 750,000. 
and it limited the interest deduction for home equity loans by requiring that the proceeds of the loan be used for home improvement. The law used to allow you to take out a home equity loan for up to $100,000 and deduct the interest regardless of how you use the proceeds. After all of these changes, there was no public outcry despite what the real estate lobby had predicted. Indeed, as the New York Times reported, the response was so minimal that some in Washington are proposing getting rid of the deduction altogether. Score one for the economists and tax policy experts who've been advocating for this all along. However, let's assume inertia wins. My next best opinion, after a full appeal of federal tax subsidies for homeowners, would be to reserve those subsidies for homeowners living in the neighborhoods that suffer under the system. I propose we revise all home ownership subsidies to target them directly to those living in neighborhoods that are undervalued because of the race of the occupants. Those neighborhoods deserve government tax subsidies because the government's original discrimination against Black Americans gave rise to the current discrimination perpetuated by private white home buyers. Since 10% seems to be the magic number of Black homeowners that makes a neighborhood lose value, homeowners living in neighborhoods with more than 10% Black homeowners would be eligible for all current tax subsidies. Won't that lead to gentrification? Well, a tax break could help offset rising property taxes and keep black homeowners in place. And as we've seen, when black homeowners remain, neighborhoods are much less attractive to many white homeowners. This isn't likely to be upheld by the Supreme Court, however. Why? When it comes to allowing race-based remedies, the Supreme Court requires evidence of discriminatory intent as well as discriminatory impact. It wouldn't matter that the government caused the problem by discriminating against the very racial group that would benefit from this new tax subsidy, as long as the federal government can claim that it didn't intend these tax policies to be discriminatory. Put more simply, as Charles Dickens wrote in Oliver Twist, the law is a but. I'm not going to say the other word. What would be allowed is to tie all home ownership subsidies to neighborhoods and neighborhood wealth. If you compare neighborhood median wealth to the citywide median wealth, you could legally create subsidies that exclusively go to home buyers in neighborhoods with low citywide median. As part of a neighborhood-based subsidy policy, we could also tie in deductions for home sale losses in these neighborhoods. Wealth, as we will see in one of our future chapters, is a typical metric for limiting access to government benefits. So this fix would unlikely uh, face any serious constitutional challenges. The racial wealth gap means that my proposal will likely apply to the majority of black homeowners who live in racially diverse neighborhoods, as well as to the residents of some all white neighborhoods in poorer rural areas. From my perspective, that makes the neighborhood based subsidy a less than ideal solution, but it's potentially the most politically and legally viable. In addition, as noted above, I partner these subsidies with one new tax break, allowing losses on the sale of homes to be fully deductible. Just as investors are allowed to deduct their losses if their stock portfolio takes a hit in a given year. Wonder why we privilege stock gains and losses? We'll dig into that in another chapter. 
The symbolism attached to the mortgage deduction and other tax subsidies for home ownership is powerful, as is the message that home ownership is an unqualified good for all. I think of my mother in her prayer that they get the house on Morris Avenue in Mary Hancock's refrain from her subsidized rental apartment in Nashville. One day, I'm going to have me a house. In truth, home ownership in America is rigged and has been from the beginning. Most white homeowners win and all but a few black homeowners lose. Forget the Fair Housing Act, forget redlining, forget the illegal but still active practice of mortgage discrimination. Today's federal government creates and perpetuates pro-white policies in the form of tax subsidies for home ownership that are perfectly lawful. Tax subsidies for home ownership are little more than the 21st century version of redlining and they must be repealed. Look at the families in this chapter who've managed to buy and keep their homes. The Browns pursued their dream with significant financial help from a white family and the luck of having very good tenants. John and his wife suffered a huge setback and ultimately chose to be a minority in their neighborhood for the sake of financial security and the promise of a better future for their children. And Mary Hancock and her husband got the house she wanted with help from a community organization and still found themselves vulnerable to real estate trends driven by white buyers. Yet each of them has been fortunate in a way that most black Americans are not. Black exceptionalism, not an equitable system, underlies the success of those in the black community who managed to wrestle some degree of wealth from home ownership. The question remains, is it worth it? Should black Americans try to grab this piece of the American dream? Or should we understand that it will never work for us in the same way it works for white homeowners? The answer to both questions is yes, but a qualified yes. Black homeowners need to be especially careful to protect themselves in a white dominated market. But as we've seen with the declining mortgage interest deduction, a single policy change is not enough to shift the fortunes of black families. Luck and strategy paved the way for black home ownership in generations past. And unfortunately, there's still a requirement for the type of black home ownership that leads to wealth building. We want to get past luck. To dismantle the system means fully acknowledging the racist past that shaped today's real estate market, but it also requires each of us, black and white, to confront the market's racist present. And that is the end of chapter two. So as we take our station break, again, we will be resuming on November 1st. We will be in chapter three of this book. Again, I encourage you to get it and catch up with us. The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown, especially if you are in the market for buying a house. If you are um, a real estate in the real estate business at all, <laughs> whether you are white or black. You probably need to read this book so you can know some of the things that black families are facing and how you can better serve and help them in the market. All right. If you would like to join me in some conversation, you can click on the camera. Um, I will say from a personal uh, perspective, almost everything that she's talking about 
my husband and I have uh, run into it in one shape or form when she talks about um, the neighborhood that you choose to buy your house in, the first neighborhood we chose to buy our house in um, versus this current neighborhood that we're in and the attitudes and behaviors that she describes in this book about how white homeowners do drive the market and their attitudes and behaviors about living next to black people or the increase of black people in their neighborhood, those attitudes and behaviors begin to and still do drive the market. So I have seen that um, firsthand for myself. If you would like to, again, comment on this broadcast, you can click onto the camera and I will bring you in. If not, I will be closing out. If you're listening by anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues, I want to thank you for your time and attention today. Check out our website at Robert and Shante, Robert and Shante global.com, Robert and Shante global.com. That's where you can uh, find our goods, products, and services and see how you can be a support to what it is that we do. Thank you again for your time and attention, and I'll see you November 1st for the return of our Daring Dialogues.